The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Larry Allen. Larry is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Uh, uh, And Larry, first of all, welcome to the show. Roger, thanks. It's great to be back. Yeah, well, well, given our backgrounds, we, you know, this discussion has got to start with GSA, of course, right? So, um, and there's a lot going on there that we can talk about. But let's first, let's, let's talk about transactional data reporting. Um, you know, you know, GSA is very focused on moving forward across the entire schedules program, making it an option for contractors to uh, move to TDR as opposed to the current you know, commercial sales practices slash price reduction clause model. Um, but there's also, it's been taking some time. Um, there's, I know there's been concern rate concerns raised by the inspector general. So I wanted to get your take on the whole TDR concept, uh, where GSA is and what you anticipate seeing. Roger, I think you probably know I started out as a skeptic of TDR, the transactional data reporting pilot that GSA instituted several years ago as an alternate path to obtain a GSA schedule contract. But now I've come around to where I'm a supporter of TDR. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is I think it's attracted new businesses, particularly smaller firms, to the schedules program that may not have been able to obtain a contract through the traditional schedule uh, method. But more significantly, that means that federal buyers have more options from the schedules program, uh, more innovative options, better competition. So it's a real benefit, not just for industry, but for government. Uh, I know that you know people do have their issues with TDR, and you always want to make sure you've got a good process, whether it's this process or the traditional method of obtaining a schedule contract, whatever it is. But I think what's really significant about this, Roger, is that you know, GSA's senior procurement executive has come out and said that they typically obtain better contract level pricing when they take the TDR negotiation path versus the traditional path. And I think that's something that people really need to understand. Now, you referenced the IG report, and the IG report kind of had me a little bit confused. And I think if you looked at through the report, other people would be confused too, because the IG says on one part that the type of data that GSA is gathering under the TDR pilot isn't very good data. And then they turn right around and criticize GSA for not relying on that data uh, as part of their price reasonableness determinations. <laughs> so, uh, what are they more upset with? Are they more upset with the fact that the data is bad or that GSA practitioners aren't using the bad data? Fortunately, Roger, GSA schedule troops have other opportunities, other resources available to them for using uh, and arriving at price reasonableness determinations. Plenty of other data out there. And let's remember, too, that the principal idea behind TDR data was not to assist in 
negotiating schedule prices. It was to give federal buyers a sense of what was happening specifically in the federal market. So I think the IG was a little off base there as well. So I think you've got a, a, a reasonable program in TDR, one that I hope gets expanded throughout the schedules program. It's clearly been a benefit to federal agencies. Uh, it attracts more businesses when you have an administration push that's also a GSA push to get more small, small disadvantaged businesses into government contracting. This is one way to do that. Yeah, I think you hit on the emphasis on small business, I think, is um, right on point. Um, you know, the old CSP and PRC really is a bear, barrier to entry for small businesses just who just don't have the resources to create the compliance systems to track all that stuff. Um, this is a much more straightforward approach to collecting information that's actually more relevant and that it's the federal market. So um, so I think you share my view. It's a, a pro-small business, uh, you know, program. Right. And I think that, you know, when you look at the GSA schedules program, they traditionally had a really good small business story to tell, Roger. TDR just makes that uh, a more stronger case brings in some innovation to the program. Uh, so, you know, I think that agency, I think that agencies benefit, I think contractors benefit, of course, it's not that, and I don't think we want to give the feeling that if you take that path, that there are no rules and regulations right. that you need to abide with. There certainly are. It's just that there are fewer of them and that the ones that you do have to abide by are a little bit easier to comply with. But any contractor, whether you're taking the traditional schedules route or the TDR route, really has to keep compliance in mind from day one. Yeah. Um, and the other thing you touched on that I wanted to to you know pull the string on a little bit is you mentioned that the data, you know, the the intent here is not to use that data necessarily to negotiate um, contract level pricing. Um, and you know, that ha is happening in some instances. Um, what's, you know, what's your take on that? I mean, I think it, it just raises questions about consistency with a FAR and applying, you know, the appropriate terms and conditions to whether it's a contract versus a task order or delivery order. Well, I think that's exactly right. I think we all know, Roger, that pricing, uh, anytime you're going to get into a competitive situation for a specific buy, is going to be more uh, honed to that specific opportunity. You certainly want to have fair and reasonable pricing at the contract level, but contractors are going to react to all of the pressures and uh, incentives in the marketplace when there's actual business on the line. And I think the issue with TDR data is that if you look at the discounts that companies give to federal buyers out of context, then you may think that contract level pricing isn't really very good and isn't significant. And when in fact, for quantity of one pricing for, you know, standard, you know, ceiling type prices, it's fair and reasonable. Uh, you wouldn't want to get into a situation where all of a sudden we're using TDR data the spot discounts that contractors give for specific business and have that become the schedule price for everybody because 
that really eliminates the incentive for contractors to be uh, competitive. Uh, you know, the, right there in the schedule ordering instructions, it says that customer agencies are supposed to seek a price reduction. Well, if you take all of the uh, ability to lower prices at the task or level out at the contract level, then you're not going to get that. And I can see that happening. And then five years from now, the IG writes a report that says schedule contractors never give spot discounts anymore. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, where do you want it? Do you want it here? Or do you want it there? Uh, because you're not going to get it in both places. Right. I, that's a great, great points, Larry. And I think, you know, one of the things is that the price reduction clause itself says that there are no, you know, that price reductions to customer agencies do not trigger the clause. It's specifically written out. So that, what, what does that tell you? That tells you that it's trying, it's structured to try to promote, you know, those discounts at the order level. And I guess the, the easiest way I would explain it is, you know, you have agency X that places a delivery order for 10,000 widgets for, worth $2 million and you, and the company gives a, you know, a 20% discount off their schedule price. And GSA turns around and say, I want that as a contract price. Well, you know, I think the response there is, well, I'll give it to you, but are you going to order $2 million this year and then next year and then the year after? Right. Right. I mean, that's a different, that's a fundamentally different terms and condition. And I mean, that's the easiest way to explain it to me when you have a contract that has a guaranteed minimum of $2,500 and the opportunity to compete, that's a different, wholly different contract. Um, and transaction than an order for 10,000 widgets worth $2 million, right? I mean, it's just fundamental. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about in this context, too, was uh, was the, the GSA's recent removal of highly competitive from the solicitation saying that, you know, in order to be found fair and reasonable, you know, prices have to be highly competitive. Um, and GSA has just recently taken that language out of the solicitation. And I'd like to get, when we come back, we're at the break already. When we come back, let's talk about that a little bit, some of the context and um, why that is truly a good thing consistent with law and regulation. My guest is Larry Allen. He is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder. My guest today is Larry Allen. He is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. We're talking about GSA and lots lots, lots going on there. Um, and before we turn to this highly competitive language that I mentioned at the end of the last segment, you know, I wanted to get your thoughts on where you see TDR going. You know, there was the original pilot that was done, you know, the senior procurement executive, you know, uh, looked at the results of the pilot, said, you know, it's appropriate to expand the program, started to expand it. Um, now it's kind of sort of in stasis, I guess, you know, or um, where do you, so where do you think it's going? When do you think they'll re, if they'll, and when they'll restart the uh, schedule-wide implementation? Roger, I'm hopeful, and I have every reason to believe that the TDR program will, eventually be expanded schedules wide. I think that that's the uh, intent of the schedules program office, uh, analyzing the data. You know, we like to make data-driven decisions here. Uh, we already previously talked about the fact that TDR contracts can get you better contract level pricing. Uh, we've already talked about the benefits of it attracting and lowering the barrier to market entry for newer and smaller businesses 
So there's a lot of pros associated with taking the TDR program schedules wide. Working with the IG, I think, is going to be difficult, but, you know, the IG has its role to play, and you want to respect that. But uh, ultimately, the decision on the program is on the program side managers, and I'm hopeful that they will uh, work and find a path to take TDR throughout the program. I think they'd like to do it sooner rather than later, and I'd like to encourage them to do that. Right. I think... But to your point, they're going to have to work with the IG um, to try to address some of their concerns or at least explain why they, you know, some of the concerns aren't, shouldn't really be of concern, I guess. But um, let's turn to highly competitive. Now, you know, there's been language in the uh, FSS solicitation saying that, you know, prices have to be highly competitive in order to be determined fair and reasonable. And if they're not, your offer be rejected. I'm, sort of paraphrasing the language, but that's it. Um, and that raised a lot of different concerns um, with regard to, you know, that language, its meaning, its consistency with the underlying statutes and regulations governing price negotiations and, you know, and procurement in general. Um, your thoughts? Roger, I think GSA is to be commended for taking the highly competitive language out of the solicitation. I think as you pointed out, Nowhere in the FAR or GSAM that I'm aware of is the term highly competitive defined. Highly competitive as a negotiation objective has not gone through any rulemaking process. And there is a rulemaking process out there. If the agency would like to have highly competitive or some other objective entered into the solicitation, then there's you know the Administrative Procedures uh, Act that you can follow, you can open a, a case, get public comment, uh, see if that's a good idea or not. Uh, but you also give people a chance to know, hey, this is coming, and then it gets vetted. And none of that had happened with highly competitive now. It just kind of showed up one day. So I think the agency uh, did well to take that uh, requirement out. I don't think it harms GSA's ability at all to obtain fair and reasonable pricing. Uh, in fact, I think it makes it a little bit more of a win-win situation for industry and government. Uh, you know, being able to prove highly competitive when a term that's not well-defined, that could pose a substantial burden on a number of businesses, particularly the small businesses, which you and I have already mentioned, are really the backbone of the schedules program. Uh, so, you know, that's the type of thing you have to be careful about. Roger, you and I have been in the, this business uh, long enough to know that every so often, non-vetted contract clauses and other requirements creep into the schedule solicitation. So that's not that this is new. Uh, usually what happens, though, is that those clauses stay in until they get properly vetted. And this time, GSA, I think, you know, again, did the right thing uh, to take take that clause out, I think it's going to uh, make it much easier for people. The trick now is going to be training the schedule acquisition workforce to say, hey, you know, these are actually the negotiation principles, not this highly competitive language that we had as an outlier for a while. And anytime you get, unfortunately, anytime you get an ounce of common sense or a little bit of common sense 
injected into the, any program, I think, at the high level, it can take a while for it to sink in and get adopted down at the line level. So I'm glad that GSA took the steps that it took, but it's going to take a little while at that line level to unwind. Yeah, to your point, Larry, they, you know, with the announcement that there were, you know, that language is no longer applicable, they still have to do cleanup of the solicitation. And uh, my understanding is the next refresh, is it 17 maybe? Um, that's coming in July is actually going to go through and, you know, and address the references to that language throughout the solicitation. So it's even there, it's taken a month to do that. And then I think you're quite right, or, and, and that's a great point that, the training with regard to the removal of this language and what it means, I think is going to be critically important for, uh, you know, for offerors and for contracting officers. And I also think you're correct that it does, it get back, it gets back to fundamental basics and what's a fair and reasonable price as articulated in, you know, the statutes and regulations and, you know, part 15 of the FAR and the GSAR clauses that, Either the either the TDR clause or the clause that implements the CSP and you know all that guidance around it and all the internal guidance that GSA has as well, which I wanted to ask you about that as well. I mean, periodically and in the past, GSA used to publicize or FAS did, and then before FSS, you know their internal sort of guidance to contracting officers. Um, and right now, I think you know that's fallen by the wayside. Um, is that some? What, what's your views on that? Would that be a positive development, Roger? I think it would be a positive development. I think any time that uh, you you're not sharing information, then you've got a real possibility for there being a disconnect when one company is sitting down with its contracting specialist or contracting officer trying to negotiate a contract, and they reach an impasse and they can't figure out why they reach the impasse uh, and they can't figure out how to get around it. And in my experience, having the GSA's internal uh, guidance to contract professionals releasable, and for a while it was releasable under FOIA. And at one point, I, I think they were even talking about putting it on their website. You know, that type of stuff is immensely helpful because it gives people a common baseline from which they can proceed with a negotiation, proceed with an offer. They understand a little bit better why the contracting people are asking for the things they're asking for. They may not agree with it, but if you see it in the guidance, little light goes on and says, aha, I understand. And then sometimes you all, you and I have also seen when you're not sharing that type of information, the opportunity for well-intentioned people on each side to just talk past each other uh, is really there. And that, that does happen. It's a big program. And it's you, like one person's you know, speaking on plane A and the other person's on plane B and they never quite meet. So I'd like to see GSA go ahead and put that type of guidance back out, make it releasable to industry. It doesn't harm GSA's negotiation capabilities at all but it does work to give everybody a common set of understandings about what the government's trying to achieve so that uh, you don't have those impasses and contractors can make more informed decisions about 
whether and how they want to participate in the program. Yeah, I mean, when I listen to that description, Larry, I mean, I, I, get, I guess you would say, and I think I, I would agree, that it's a streamlining. It would be a streamlining measure. The more people understand, you know, the focus and the approach that they're taking, the to your point, the light bulb goes on on a part of on-off OR, and, oh, I need to make sure I'm doing this and this and this. It can actually enhance you know, the, the the efficiency of the program over time. And also, I think it's just a good thing from an accountability perspective. Right. And I, th- those are both key elements. Uh, you know, we've certainly seen the guidance, those longstanding guidance that isn't always evenly applied by contracting officers. When that happens, it's nice for industry to be able to say politely, professionally, hey, you know, this is contrary to your own guidance can we have a a broader discussion about how we get past this and how we can maybe reach a compromise that gets everybody where they want to go. But if, if you don't know what the guidance says, then you're kind of flying blind. Uh, And to your point, Roger, it does uh, make things much more difficult. It uh, inserts an adversarial tone into certain negotiations when there does not need to be one. And, uh, that really just slows things down. So sharing that information would be, indeed be a good streamlining move. All right. Well, Larry, we're up on the break already. Um, so when we come back, uh, you know, another big event, so to speak, in the GSA world and interagency contracting world was the uh, Polaris bid protest decision. So when we come back, we'll talk about that. My guest today is Larry Allen. He's the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Larry Allen. Larry is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners, and we're talking about, uh, we have been talking about GSA and the schedules program in particular, but now we're going to turn to interagency contracting and uh, and really just IDIQ contracting in general, when you think about the broad impact of the Polaris decision. Um, so Larry, let's just talk about the Polaris decision, you know, your take on it and uh, what are the ramifications for lots of different programs out there? So Roger, the Polaris decision that we're referring to is a decision in one of the many protests that small businesses lodged against GSA's Polaris program. And in this specific case, it was decided by the Court of Federal Claims. And the Court of Federal Claims said two things that GSA did wrong in the Polaris solicitation. The bigger of the two is that they were trying to rely on a narrowly written statute to allow the agency to have a non-priced contract. That is, there would not be any pricing at the contract level on Polaris. And while I think GSA's justification met the spirit of the law, it didn't meet the letter of the law, according to either the Justice Department or the Court of Federal Claims, uh, who told GSA, clearly, thou shalt not proceed with Polaris based on that assumption. So for that, GSA kind of had to go back to the drawing board and uh, look at some sort of contract-level pricing. 
I think what they're going to do is end up borrowing from their cousins over in the Oasis program uh, in terms of having contract level market pricing uh, that is, you know, really a ceiling price where you're going to have not, you're not going to have to go through all the lengths and hoops to, to show that you're offering really low prices, but that your prices are competitive and based on some sort of market analysis. And then you'll have contract level pricing, and then you can refine that and get really competitive at the task order level, which, as we previously mentioned today, is really where the rubber meets the road. Uh so GSA tried to rely on a statute that was intended to give them the authority to have a non-price contract, but the statute was really narrowly written to talk about time and labor hour contracts and hourly rate services where Polaris was going to offer both those types of services and firm fixed price service solutions. So the other issue that the claims court ruled in on was how GSA scored past performance for men or protege teams that were offering on Polaris. And I thought it was kind of interesting here, Roger, the court said, you know, we don't really quite like the way you did it here, GSA, so you're going to have to redo it. But the court didn't give them a definite way to say, this is how you should fix it. There was nothing really prescribed by the court just the GSA go back. They say, you're really close, and you as an agency have a lot of discretion on how you score these types of agreements, but you didn't get it quite right this time, so you need to tweak it. So the Polaris team has to deal with both of those issues right now, and, Roger, they have to make the larger strategic decision as to whether or not they're actually going to come back with what would essentially be a third try to implement a small business IT solutions uh, IDIQ contract. Remember, Polaris itself was the second iteration after the ill-fated Alliance Small Business 2 contract that itself was sunk from a steady line of protests. So, you know, I think that GSA's IT team will come back and try for a third time, but that's going to be something they're going to have to really contemplate. Uh, Larry, um, just to, to you know, follow up on on those observations. So I think I think what if, if I heard you correctly, that you they're really looking at you know the original Oasis methodology, probably Polaris and others, where the prices or whatever was proposed and it was more limited, but was found fair and reasonable, and then they awarded to the high scoring technical proposals. Um, I mean, it seems to me that, and I think that that approach was actually challenged at some point and was upheld either by GO or the courts. I, I don't recall, but is that what you're, you, you see them doing? It, it is Roger. I, and I think that the path forward in terms of contract level pricing is much clearer than the path forward for how the agency is going to try to evaluate and score experience for mentor-protege teams. Uh, We do have, as you pointed out, a construct that's been used and approved, been used and approved inside GSA for a similar type of contract. Uh, But, you know, the court, again, by not providing GSA with a firm path forward on the evaluation side, 
you know, in some cases they were doing the, the uh, agency a favor, but in others, you know, GSA is going to have to try to be as objective as possible in a situation that actually may just have some inherent subjectivity to it. So I think that, you know, if we see this move forward, we might not get so many protests on the pricing again, but we may get some on the mentor-protege issue. And ultimately, Roger, I think we're going to have to get a court precedent that says this is the way to do it, and that'll settle the issue. And by the way, that doesn't just settle it for GSA. This has been a real issue over at NIH for their CIOSP3 program. So uh, it would really kind of settle the IDI commu- IDIQ community down a little bit. Uh, do you see a role? I mean, it seems to me that, that GSA should, should de- and I, I assume they are, talking to the SBA as to the approach. I mean, ultimately, you know, you would think the SBA blessing a particular approach, um, of course, it, it never works that way, but you would think that would that would carry great weight moving forward with the community. Roger, I think that you're right on the right track there. I think the SBA and GSA need to work on this uh, mentor-protege issue. In the meantime, we've seen the SBA come out with new rules that are maybe the next backyard over from this rule, talking about mentor-protege teams and you know, how many teams you can join and, you know, what's a conflict of interest and things of that nature. So this is actually a a live topic generally for the SBA where they are uh, coming out with more and more guidance. So uh, having GSA and SBA in the same, uh, on the same page doesn't prevent a protest, but hopefully it makes the prospect of a successful protest a little bit more challenging. So Larry, uh, turning to some other GSA vehicles that are coming down the pike, you have a lot Oasis plus, and I know there's an announcement there about the solicitation coming out and then Alliant threes follow on. Uh, how, how do you see, you know, the, the, them navigating these issues? So I think the, the Oasis plus people there, they put their announcement in late uh, recently they're going to come out on or about the 15th of June to uh, with their new RFP for Oasis Plus industry. I know is really highly anticipating that. I think uh, the Oasis Plus team has done really good work here in terms of uh, going back and redoing because they had to change their own solicitation as a result of the claims court ruling in the Polaris case to add contract level pricing. They weren't going to have contract level pricing initially, but because the claims court ruled the way they did, that has implications for Oasis Plus and, by the way, Alliant 3. So uh, it's just that Oasis Plus had to move a little bit more quickly. I, I think one of the real challenges we're going to see with Oasis Plus is going to be on some of these smaller business sides of the program. And GSA has said they're going to release each. Oasis Plus solicitation separately. One's going to be unrestricted, and there are going to be a series of others for small business socioeconomic groups. Uh, so we're going to have to see where the protests are on that in terms of their mentor-protege language and evaluation. 
Uh, it may very well be that Oasis Plus gets to set the standard here that other people will uh, go by. Uh, but I think it's great that uh, the Oasis Plus team uh, has been able to turn around quickly and get this out. Uh, there, there's not a lot of time here for them to get the solicitation out and get new offers in place uh, before you have another ceiling issue with current Oasis contracts. Uh, so, and then the communication that the Oasis Plus team has done with industry has just been tremendous. They've done a really nice job uh, with that. So hopefully that will reduce the number of uh, actual protests. Uh, Alliant 3, GSA has said that they're going to come out with that in the first quarter of FY24. That's highly anticipated as well. Uh, They're going to, you know, I think probably use the same type of uh, pricing language that GSA has developed for Oasis Plus. And by then, hopefully we'll have some better guidance on mentor-protege scoring so that Alliant 3 which is operating under an even tighter deadline than Oasis, will be able to proceed uh, without significant protest-related delays. So, Larry, let's stop there with the discussion of Line 3. When we come back, I'll have a a question for you with regard to where do we go with regard to the statute? Um, Do do you see it getting amended to address the original intent to apply to service contracts across the board? Um, and then we can turn to NASA's soup and what's next for that. My guest today is Larry Allen. He is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Larry Allen. He's a president of Allen Federal Business Partners, and we're talking, we've been talking GSA, and I guess we'll continue and then maybe look at another government-wide uh, IT contract and IT GWAC in, in, the, in the name of NASA soup. But first of all, just to finish our conversation about the Polaris decision, you know, the statute, you know, is the language, it, you know, refers to contracts priced on an hourly basis, hence the decision at the end of the day. Uh, you know, that, that, as I recall, was not Congress's intent. They wanted to provide and focus on competition at the task order level. Um, and that's where pricing and value and approach would be handled. And then, you know, we were essentially vetting and having contractors on, you know, you know, compete on a technical basis purely to get on a contract. And, you know, this language applies to all the civilian agencies. G- DOD has its own language that is much broader and doesn't, you know, isn't, um, you know, defined or referenced with regard to specific contract types. Um, so that language is much more flexible. What do you see Congress doing down the road? Well, I think, Roger, we're going to have, have to see uh, Congress expanding out the language to make it clear that GSA has the authority in a variety of service contract-related circumstances to put out uh, non-priced contracts. Uh, They're going to have to, I I think, uh, well, I hope they will. They don't have to do anything, but I hope they will follow through on what their original intent was in terms of providing GSA with that type of flexibility. Uh, Both the agency and Congress, I think, thought that they were going to get the full amount of flexibility 
the first time around, but now the court has said no. It's uh, labor rate, hour services only. So uh, I'm hoping that maybe in the FY25 defense bill, we'll see uh, a change. It may be a little bit too late for this year. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I would like to see GSA get the authority that Congress wants them to have. It'd be kind of interesting to see how a non-price contract works. So hopefully we can get that done. I, I don't see that being a partisan issue. I think it's rather one of timing and coming up with language that would clarify the existing statute. Yeah, I think it, it's a it would, it's a streamlining measure, and it you know it puts the focus where it should be at the task order level for you know price value and uh, and best value, frankly, at the end of the day. Um, so let's turn to NASA Soup. Um, there also, it's a big it's a big year or big next you know twelve to eighteen months for these uh, government-wide contract vehicles. So NASA Soup is working on their acquisition plan, and I think they're going to anticipate a draft RFP out, you know, in June or July uh, of this summer. Um, you're, and, and I think the big watchword there is expansion into services. What What are your thoughts on NASA Soup? Well, Roger, I think uh, the idea that Soup is going to wade a little bit more into the services area is something that's definitely news. Throughout its current life, it's been really a product-defined contract, one that's been extremely uh, successful, very well-liked by both contractors and government agencies in terms of being able to provide timely IT product-based solutions uh, to government agencies. Uh, Soup has a great reputation for being able to add new things quickly to the contract. Uh, they have a small but very dedicated staff of people that really try to work with the customer agency uh, on any of their specific needs. Uh, and so far, they've tried to stay away from services that weren't firmly tied to the actual delivery and support of the product uh, because they don't have a tremendous amount of uh, bandwidth inside the agency that's supporting this contract. Uh, and, you know, when you get into the services world, there are so many more variables about what's a reasonable price and, you know, what types of services are covered under the Services Contract Act, what aren't. So this is a real kind of big departure as we go into Soup 6, uh, which, you know, really speaks to the fact we've got a six iteration of this program. It's been phenomenally popular uh, for, I think, you know, a good portion of our careers, Roger. Uh, we'll have to see what they're, how they turn out here when they forage more into the services area, kind of more competing on a heads-up basis with GSA. I think everybody kind of understands that if you're going to have a uh, IT contract today, it has to have a service component to it because that's simply how federal buyers purchase IT. They buy many, many more times services and solutions than they do off-the-shelf hardware and software. So to some degree, I think this change was inevitable, but it certainly is going to uh, put some pressure on what is a relatively small group of people and uh, adds a new dynamic uh, that, uh, you know, is a little bit more difficult to manage. So we'll have to see. Well, uh, in that regard, uh, just from a 
from the perspective of uh, of where NASA Soup fits in the in the interagency contracting world, it is the largest ITGWAC does you know, over nine billion a year annually. That's that is the biggest, and it's to your point, primarily hardware and services, and it's also the oldest GWAC out there. You know, been around the longest, and you know we're in the sixth iteration. You know, you know that that big customer base, like everybody orders off NASA Soup across the federal enterprise. It seems to me that's a big competitive opportunity for them to to truly get into services, and there's a there's huge potential here for that program and the contractors who get on it. Oh, that unquestionably, un, uh, Roger. A lot of uh, potential upside here. Uh, I just hope that he, they uh, get the resources that they need to help them manage that uh, capability properly. Uh, you know, they've had the, the uh, they've had the benefit of being able to watch how GSA has done it now for a number of years, and seeing how things have maybe changed a little bit over time. And a lot of what NASA Soup does is they do piggyback off of what's already on the schedule, which makes it a little bit easier for them to execute uh, on their contract, whether or not they do that here, we'll have to see, you know, it's not the exact same authority. We know that different parts of the FAR, but uh, you know, very popular contract. Again, I think in order for them to continue being popular at some point, they were going to have to expand into the services world more uh, simply because that's how customers buy uh, and you'll maybe attract some new companies to the program as well. We saw a significant increase in the number of soup contractors from soup four to soup five. With this type of expansion, Roger, I think we can expect to see the same type of growth from soup five to soup six. You know, there's a, there's a lot going on there. And, uh, but I, I do think this is a potential sea change in interagency contract in terms of, you know, the competitive dynamics of the market that, you know, NASA soup, will in another area be competing directly against GSA, you know, and its contract vehicles. And it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. I think that's good for everybody because competition is a good thing. You know, people improve, programs improve. So I think that's a healthy approach. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty optimistic that NASA soup is going to do very well in this next iteration. Um, you know, but Larry, we got, we got a couple minutes left and I wanted to, Give an opportunity. So we're in June of 2023. So um, and we're getting ready for the fourth quarter, the governments of the government's fiscal year. That's July, August, and September. And you have tips for companies, and I know you you do a lot of support a lot of folks and give them you know tips on what to do in this quarter, how to compete, how to get business. Uh, share some of that with us. Share share some of your secret sauce, Larry. <laughs> Absolutely happy to, Roger. Uh, we are here just about two weeks from the start of the federal busy season. It's going to be a good, strong, busy season this year. Uh, thankfully, Congress was able to deal with the debt ceiling issue that may have been a temporary distraction, uh, but it's not anymore. And all the agencies out there, Roger, have uh, good funding. Some have some very significant funding left. Uh, so uh, from a macro perspective, there should be uh, some good hunting for business in the federal fourth quarter. One of the things I tell contractors is that they really have to focus 
get their pipeline, vet their pipeline. Of course, this suggests that you have a pipeline, which you should have. Uh, you don't want to be oblivious to things that aren't in your pipeline, but you can't constantly be distracted from things that you're already tracking because not everybody can be everywhere at once. So you want to focus on that type of stuff that you're already tracking where you're going to have that maximum opportunity. One of the other things I tell companies is that you want to make sure that you are in touch with your uh, contractor allies your potential teaming members, your subcontractors. If you are a subcontractor, you know, making sure that you've talked recently with your prime contractor partners, uh, you want to make sure that you and your partners are ready for the rush of business that comes during the federal fourth quarter. Uh, you want to make sure that you and your team members are on the same page, that everybody has active contracts, if that's what's needed that everybody has the right solutions uh, and the supply chains necessary to meet the business. So the second thing I always tell people is you got to check with your partners. That includes, by the way, socioeconomic partners. You see a lot of small business driven buying during the fourth quarter as agencies try to meet their small business use goals for the year. So that's really significant as well. And then uh, the third thing that you have to do is you have to make sure that your own contract is tuned up. No contractor should expect to be able to add a bunch of new stuff to its contract uh, in August in time for a large September buy, Roger. Uh, they're simply going to be too far in the back of the line in most cases to get that done. So make sure that your own contract vehicles are up to date and that you have proactive ways to tell your customer how they can reach from you, uh, know how they can buy from you. Not every, you know, you shouldn't be making your client uh, play 52 contract pickup, but you as a contractor do want to have those preferred acquisition methods, whether it's an IDIQ contract, whether it's working with a small business or an Alaska Native Corporation on a uh, sole source set aside, you know, whatever it is, you want to be able to answer not just the what question of what you can provide, but the how question of how you get to me. Right. Great, Larry. Thanks. Great advice. Um, and uh, I appreciate you being on the show, Larry. Uh, I want to thank my guest, Larry Allen. He is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. I'm Roger Walder, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.